live from Lexington, Mass. And today I've got an interview with a scientist. This was the one I was talking about that I hadn't gotten to. I couldn't get the interview done, but I have now. So I've got the interview here for you guys. And I'm excited for you guys to listen. So let's just jump right in. So, hi, Mr. Johnson. Um, can you please introduce yourself? Sure, absolutely. Uh, my name is Matthew Johnson. I'm a neuroscientist uh, at the Broad Institute in Cambridge. Um, I know you work at the Broad. So, first, what is the Broad? Yeah, the Broad is its its official name is Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. And um, it's a nonprofit academic research institute in Kendall Square mm-hmm. in Cambridge that's affiliated with Harvard and MIT and, it's, uh, and, and the affiliated hospitals. And it's been around for um, 16 years now. Mm-hmm. It has, uh, there's a wide range of types of research that happen there. Um, but essentially it's a, it's a, an institute where labs from across Harvard and MIT can collaborate um, to use the latest technologies in sort of high throughput biology, so genomics and and uh, and those kinds of things to to study a variety of different disease conditions and and um, look for cures. Mm-hmm. So, what projects at the Broad are you working on right now? So I work at the Stanley Center, which is a department within Broad. It's the Stanley Center for Psychiatric Research. <clears throat> and it's a, a department in the Broad that's basically the, the neuroscience department of the Broad. Um, the Stanley Center was started about 10 years ago to focus on um, under, better understanding schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and related conditions, uh, mental health conditions. So. I work in a lab specifically that um, focuses on understanding immune cells in the brain and how they impact brain health and and, uh, psychiatric disease. Um, So we have a a number of different projects where we use um, uh, genomics and genetics and cells in a dish um, and sometimes lab mice. Uh, to better understand like how immune cells function in the brain and how um, and how when they aren't functioning right they can they can contribute to things like schizophrenia or or alzheimer's disease for example mm-hmm. um, so how did you get into psychological things in neuroscience yeah uh, well i started i i actually had <clears throat> my 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 father had a friend from college, his college friend from long ago, (laughs) who was a neuroscientist. And we used to go on these hiking trips together as a family when I was a kid. I started going, we started going on these trips when I was a little bit older than you are now, probably when I was, I think the first one when I was, well, I guess your age, when I was 10. How old are you now? 10? I'm nine. I'll be turning 10 in around a month. Yeah. So we used to go. on these trips every summer from when I was 10 years old. And my dad's friend would just be 
talking to me about you know school and what I was learning about. And he was just really excited about what he was doing. And he told me a little bit about his, his work as a, as a neuroscience researcher. And ever since then, I, I was just always kind of curious about it. And so when I got to college, I, I started taking neuroscience classes. Um, and, and then I was able to find a job after college working in a lab that worked on schizophrenia. And actually, I got a really exciting sort of experience working in that lab where I got to actually um, interact with patients and people who live with this, this disorder um, and understand what life was like for them. And that really inspired me to, to, um, to continue working in my career to, to try and better understand this, this, uh, this kind of mental health issue um, from a biology perspective and, and search for ways that we might better treat, treat these diseases. Mm-hmm. So have you been doing that with the Broad the whole time? Yes. Yeah. So I joined the Broad um, three years ago. And um, yeah, my, my boss has had her lab at Boston Children's Hospital for about a decade. Her name is Beth Stevens, and she's a world expert in these immune cells that I mentioned before. Um, so she has, she has been studying these immune cells in the brain, but she wasn't working on schizophrenia. And then um, about five years ago, they, her lab made a, uh, helped uh, in working with another lab at Harvard um, make a really important discovery on how, uh, how these immune cells were actually maybe contributing to um, conditions like schizophrenia. And so that was when she, um, after that study came out, after that research was done, she, um, she asked me to join and build up this group at the, at the Broad to sort of expand on that, that line of research. Mm -hmm. So what, I'm shifting into more almost coronavirus related questions now. Yeah. <laughs> So this is sort of like a start to the coronavirus questions. Okay. So what sort of things does the Broad usually do? And is it different now that there's coronavirus? Yeah, so I think um, that's a really good question. So um, as I mentioned earlier that, you know, the Broad started off with a big focus on genomics, which is sort of was born. So actually, I, I could have actually... It's, it's important, actually, help, helpful to mention this about the history of the Broad. The Broad started 15 or 16 years ago. Um, it sort of grew out of a collaboration between Harvard and MIT that was working on the Human Genome Project. And this was sort of a, the first really, um, the first time that, that we had a complete picture of all of the DNA in the human genome. And that that effort required them to build some really new technologies in, 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 in this kind of research and, and scale them up. And so ever since then, the Broad has really, everything that it does is really um, based in genetics and, and these sorts of high throughput um, technologies. So they, in typical times, um, applied these kinds of technologies to a wide range of diseases, such as schizophrenia in my department, but also um, 
diabetes and cancer and all kinds of other things. There is also a, a pretty big lab at the Broad that studies infectious diseases. Um, that's run by a woman named Paris Sabeti, and she's a world-renowned expert on infectious diseases, um, like, like coronavirus. Um, in fact, I was working with a um, member of her lab last year, just <laughs> actually, just last December, I was talking to him and he had built an app for smartphones that, was, that he was using in schools to teach kids about how these kinds of diseases spread. And so the way it works is you put this app on your phone. Everyone in the class or the school puts this app on their phone and the phones talk to each other by Bluetooth. And then he would start the game. It's essentially like a game. It's a simulation. Uh, he would infect a couple of people's phones. And then when those phones got near other people's phones, they could pass the infection on to those people. And it was a way of teaching schools about how these kinds of diseases spread and what kinds of things you can do to prevent the spread or track the spread or learn about the spread. So that lab has actually been doing a lot of work since coronavirus started to help understand um, that, that lab and others at, at, at Broad and, and at Harvard have been working to understand how the disease spreads, sort of the epidemiology of it. Um, and then there are other labs that are using sort of these genomics technologies to understand how the virus, because the virus is made up of RNA, so it has sequences, genetic sequences, right? You can sequence that and you can watch how those sequences change over time. And so there's a really cool effort to collect all of the genetic sequences of different people's coronavirus around the world and understand from that how the virus is spreading and how it's changing um, as it spreads around the world. So there's a lot, there are other projects too, probably, but those are sort of the two. And testing, there's a lot of work on developing new kinds of tests, um, tests that detect those genetic sequences in ways that are faster and hopefully uh, easier to, and cheaper to use in large numbers than the tests that we currently have. So what sort of projects have they been working on other than like testing or is testing and things like that their main, really all of it? Right yeah, now, that's a big part of it, definitely. Um, uh, yeah, so I mentioned these these sort of labs that work on. You may have heard actually that the that the um, recently that the Nobel Prize uh, in um, chemistry, I guess, was awarded to two scientists, two women who worked on this technology called CRISPR. Um, that's a basically a way of using a uh, a protein from a bacteria to met, to detect or change pieces of DNA. And so that's one of the technologies that's being used to try and develop new um, tests for coronavirus. Um, but um, yeah, the, the, the testing for, for COVID that, for coronavirus that you may have heard about the Broad doing a lot of is actually not, that's not so much research as the Broad was able to 
use its expertise and its its uh, knowledge of how to scale things up um, to um, to be able to do all this testing that they're doing for schools and for local communities and um, nursing homes and so on. So that's a, that's been a really um, major effort for them. But interestingly, it's not really a research effort. It's really more of a logistics effort. You know, it's they they the the test the PCR test that you hear about is not complicated scientifically. We you know it's something that it's a technique that for example everyone in my lab has done many times for different purposes. The technique is pretty straightforward, but the Broad had sort of the infrastructure and the know-how to scale it up to the point where they can do thousands and thousands and thousands of tests a day. Um, in like other labs, not just the infectious diseases ones, what kind um, of things have they been doing or have they been mostly shut down because of coronavirus? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So we did shut down completely back in March. And yeah, that's, that's I mean, you know, it's been difficult for everybody. For us, um, you know, one thing that's interesting is um, <clears throat> because of the genomics and the genetics that we do at the Broad, um, because those are tools that we rely on so much, those tools generate a lot of data. Um, lots and lots and lots of sequences of DNA, um, which, as you know, are just strings of letters, A, T, C, G. And that kind of data can, is, you know, it's analyzed on computers. And so it's funny because when everyone all of a sudden was sent home in March and uh, was trying to figure out what we could do from home to... Um, uh, to keep our research moving forward. Suddenly everyone was learning how to use the tool, the, co the computer science tools that, that are used to analyze these types of data. Um, you know, that's, that's something that a lot of um, biologists, uh, more and more biologists are learning how to use these tools. And it's important, it's an important part of um, sort of our tool, toolbox as biologists. Um, but this, this actually provided an extra motivation for some of the people in my lab who may have not been that interested in it before to suddenly need to, to learn how to use those tools because that was at least something that they could do from home. And then we started to open back up again in, uh, I guess at the end of June. And it's just been a very gradual ramping back up. So at first only about 10 or 15% of the people were allowed in the lab. And that's just the people who actually work in the lab. There are a lot of people who work at Broad who, such as computer scientists and computational biologists who always do all of their work on the computer. And those people are all still working from home. But the people who work in the lab, um, you know, with cells and mice and things, those people started going back in the end of June and then um, by the end of August were, were back full time. So. It, it's definitely, yeah, so our science is really um, resumed, I would say, full, full, uh, fully at this point, just with a lot of extra precautions, obviously, as everyone else is taking, and um, uh, with a lot of extra planning. We all have to be a little bit more careful now about 
um, planning ahead what we're going to do with our time in the lab because uh, we have to make sure to get it done and then get out so that the next person can come in because we're limited in the number of people allowed at any one time in the lab. Um, are you back in person? I go in, yeah, I've been in, um, I think right now I'm basically going twice a week. Um, I don't work in the lab very much anymore, but um, it's good to see people face to face. It's, it's nice to, to be able to talk about experiments and, and make plans and look at data without uh, the computer screen in between us. It's hard, it's been very hard to keep a connection with my team um, when everything is over Zoom. So yeah, I'm, I'm going back now, twice a week or so. So has the brood been working on any vaccine candidates or do they plan to? I don't know of any vaccine research that's happening at the Broad, no. Um, yeah, that's a that's an area, that's a one area that the Broad doesn't have, I think, the expertise or the background in. Um, that's probably best left to much larger organizations, actually. <laughs> so how do you think, based on where we are now, how do you think we're gonna be able to sort of do certain things to get out of this COVID? Mm. <laughs> That's a tough question. <laughs> um, you know, I think, you know, I saw an article yesterday that was sort of summarizing what, what because the, the response in this country has been left up basically to local groups of people, local governments, you know, state governments, local governments, for the most part. And so this article was sort of explaining, like, what have different states done well? And it's really interesting because it just highlighted that there's more than one thing. There's a number of things that we have to do well to get out of this mess, right? Um, and so you know, Rhode Island has done a really good job reopening schools for these, for certain reasons. And um, Massachusetts has done well supporting, um, uh, you know, supporting people who aren't able to pay their rent. And uh, I think it was, I forget which state they highlighted for their response to uh, nursing homes, which is something that Massachusetts hasn't done well, um, perhaps. Anyway, the point is just that there's contact tracing and testing. There's, um, uh, you know, there's going to be a vaccine at some point. Um, there's going to be better treatments. And then there's also going to be increased production of PPE. And there's going to be better communication to the public about certain risks and wearing masks. We need to do all of these things together. So I think in some ways, all of the pieces are here or will soon be here. You know, these new tests, new types of tests will, will appear. They'll be marketed and produced eventually. But if we can't figure out how to walk and chew gum at the same time, <laughs> uh, it's not going to work because you really need to do all of these things together. The other thing that I, I think is important, you know, and it's not, it's not in human nature 
to uh, to um, take preventive measures in some ways. Um, if you look at some of the parts of the country that are being hit the hardest right now, they didn't get very, they didn't have very much of a problem with coronavirus earlier in the year. And the places that were hit hard in the summer hadn't gotten it in the spring. And they sort of look people, you know, it's just human nature to look around. And, and when you don't see a threat right in front of you, it's easy to dismiss it. And so that's why we sort of need leadership that tells us these are the things you have to do to get ready now so that when it does come, you're better prepared. So what tools do you think we need to be able to do that? And do you think that the Broad will be able to help with any of them? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think a lot of the stuff that I mentioned is, is going to help. I think, you know, the, the testing that they've been able to do, um, that they scaled up their facility to do is helping already, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's helping keep schools, some schools open, colleges, and it's helping to track spread in, in underserved communities in around Boston and it's, and so on. So that, you know, that can only scale up so far, um, but, but that's helping already. I think the other things that Broad is doing that will probably, you know, this is just my guess. I don't really know that much about these, these field, this field, these fields, but I think that the development of new types of tests is the thing that I'm most excited about. Um, you know, there are people working on these tests that are essentially just little strips of paper that you can spit on and it tells you if you've got a high load of coronavirus or not. And it, and it turns colors like right away, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you can imagine, you know, if that type of a test, which already exists, the problem with it is just that it's not as sensitive or, or as good at, as, at picking up every case of coronavirus as these other tests that we have. But of course, the other tests take days um, to get the results back and they require big fancy machines that the Broad has built, you know, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars um, installing and training people how to use. So you can imagine that if, if the research that's being done, for example, on these CRISPR-based tests is able to produce a paper strip test uh, that gives you an accurate res result just by spitting on it in five minutes, then you, you know, you could, and you can make them cheaply in large quantities, that would be a game changer, right? Because then you could have, instead of that piece of paper that I fill out for Percy and Henry and Zelda every day on their way into school, saying that they haven't had a fever and haven't had a runny nose and all that kind of stuff. Instead, they just spit on a piece of paper at the door and then they go in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you do that to everyone who's going into a baseball game or a supermarket or uh, an office building. That would be more getting on an airplane. I mean, I don't know. It depends. But I think of the things that I know of that are happening at the Broad, that's probably one that has the biggest potential. Have you been working on any of them? Like on any of the tests or coronavirus-related things? Um, 
Yeah, I, I no, I, I'm not. My lab, you know, we just, we thought about early on, um, because there have been reports of uh, COVID infected people having neurological symptoms, um, including some of the younger people who are otherwise healthy and, and yet seem to have some mysterious sort of long-term effects of having had COVID, which is one of the scarier things about it. Um, those, those symptoms are not well understood yet, but it's pretty likely that at least some of that is related to these immune cells um, in the brain. I think, you know, the field that I'm in now that I've sort of found myself in in the last three years, which is not anywhere that I thought I would be, but I sort of stumbled into it luckily, is this field of immunology in the brain. And for, for many, many, many years, it was thought that the brain was sort of a, it was called immune privileged, which meant that we didn't think there were any immune cells in the brain, or we didn't think that the same processes applied, the same rules applied to the brain as other parts of your body. You know, you have an immune system in the rest of your body that fights off diseases and, and infections, uh, but because of this thing called the blood-brain barrier, which we thought prevented any of that stuff from getting into the brain, um, we didn't think those immune processes had any real um, relevance to the brain. It turns out that that's not true. Um, many of the same immune cell types and processes, it turns out, have been um, sort of adapted or, or um, tweaked to help the brain form normally during development and also to respond to diseases and, and um, infections and things. So, so, you know, things like inflammation and immune cell responses are probably having some effect in the brain in some people with COVID. But, you know, we decided early on that, you know, we, it's probably smarter for us to stick to our real areas of expertise and not try to um, jump into a new research area just because, you know, just because uh, it, it, it's hard to, there are a lot of problems to focus on and it's better to stick where we, where, where our expertise is, I think. <laughs> okay, so this is probably going to be my closing question, but how soon do you think we are going to be able to get out of this almost? Like how quickly <laughs> do you think these Ooh. steps will, or any steps? Mm. I really don't know the answer to that, Kai. That's a very hard question. I wish I did. I wish I could say, um, I, wish I, I wish I knew how long this will take. Unfortunately, I think, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't think we should get into the politics too much. But right. I think it does depend on that leadership thing that I mentioned before, you know? Yeah. We have, you know, all of this science that we've talked about, you know, the, the hard science of coronavirus has progressed incredibly mm -hmm. fast. It's really actually amazing what has been accomplished on the scientific side since this thing appeared in January. You know, the this genome sequence of the first coronavirus, uh, you know, sample was, was done within weeks. Um, and the, you know, you know, Red, Red, Red Dem severe or whatever it's called. 
yeah. approved pretty quickly and vaccine trials are already happening and and we know so much about um, you know in which what the receptor is that it binds to on so that was like within a month I think they had scientists had identified the receptor that on the cells that the virus binds to um, so all of that stuff, I mean, the, the tests, the new tests and everything, and all that stuff is happening. Um, where we have, I think, run into more problems in this country and in many other countries, um, but not all, is in sort of the, the leadership side of it and the implementation of this knowledge, right? So, you know, how long will it take to get out of this mess? I don't know. Uh, uh, certainly the Certainly the vaccine is a big question mark at this point. You know, we hope that it'll be ready, you know, sometime next year. Um, and that would make, that would make a huge difference. Um, ready by, by which I mean, you know, like scientifically proven, what's that? I said just like, I was just saying distributable, like yeah. probably distributable. Right, yeah, I think, you know, it, it may be, uh, it may be taken till the end of next year before it, it's not only proven to work but also and be safe, but also we have you know manufactured it enough and had have enough uh, supplies to be able to get it to people, right? But anyway, so I think that's 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 a big part of the timeline. But then the other part is just like how well our leadership can help us uh, implement these um, these new advances, right? Um, if, if that paper strip test is, is invented um, and developed, uh, even if it existed today, it would take time for the FDA to decide that it's something safe and, and that people should use and for, for uh, governments to um, require companies to manufacture them and send them places. So um, all those kinds of decisions come from, from leaders that, um, you know, and, and who those leaders are is, uh, may be very different in a few months than they are right now. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. So, um, not to be like, not to be uh, sort of critical to what you were saying, but I've never, I thought I heard that a coronavirus vaccine has never been like made for any of the coronaviruses. So, how is it going to be developed differently this time? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, it's definitely not my area of expertise, but I think, um, you know, there are uh, new types of, well, a couple of things. First of all, there are new types of vaccines um, that have never been tried before, but that we're trying, companies are trying now. Uh, so. Um, Hmm. I should probably uh, suggest someone else for you to talk to specifically about vaccines because it's not my um, <laughs> not my strong suit. But you know, this company there's a company in Cambridge called Moderna that's developing a vaccine that's based on the RNA of the virus rather than on the proteins of the virus. And as far as I know, that's a totally new idea. So it's a new a new a new way of vaccinating people that hasn't been really tried before. Right. Um, so, you know, maybe that'll work. Um, and that would be amazing. I think, you know, that's related to the larger point of, uh, sure, maybe there hasn't been a coronavirus vaccine before, but 
Um, hmm. Boy, we didn't really need one so badly ever before as we do now. <laughs> right. Um, you know, this is a, this is a new, this is not, you know, there are other coronaviruses that cause the common cold, but that's, that's all they do is cause the common cold, right? Um, you know, I think the motivation uh, now is, uh, is obviously a lot greater. Right. And when, you know, and when science is presented with a challenge like that, um, it's amazing what can be accomplished. So I have, I have faith that, um, I have, I have hope that, uh, that they'll figure it out. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. That was a very interesting and fun interview to have had. And, well, just thank you. And now I'm going to move into some weird news, which if you've listened to this podcast a lot, you would know is something that we do. And so I'm going to start with an update on something that I reported on maybe almost, I think, 10 or 12 episodes ago, I think. And it's the murder hornets. So I've got a little update on them. And I think you guys would be interested to know that, well, the murder hornets are doing well for themselves, but um, in terms of the fact that they're not good for the environment of the U.S., um, I guess things are going pretty badly because the first murder hornet nest, like before there was murder hornets, okay, but now there's nests of them, and they're breeding, which means that there's going to be more of them, which isn't good. And it was discovered in Washington State. The state. I thought that that was interesting, pretty bad, but also pretty cool that I think it's the first nest that they've made in North America, not just the U.S. Okay. So... Yeah, that was pretty interesting, but now, moving on to some more animal weird news. I think that you'd be also interested to know that, well, a Massachusetts town has told its people, stop calling 911 about the giant fish. My first question, why is there a giant fish that's so big that people feel the need to call 911? My second question, why can't they just deal with it? My third question, how are they even seeing it? Are they all out at sea? Like, how many 911 calls are you going to get to tell people to stop calling about it? I mean, it must mean, like, the whole town's out at sea, seeing this giant fish. Okay. Weird. Definitely weird. But now, this one... It's kind of sad, but kind of funny at the same time. So, a woman in Florida won a lottery ticket. Um, I think it was like $10,000, but she didn't get the $10,000 because all the prize money got lost somewhere or another in the mail. So, um, maybe don't trust the mail. But... Yeah, I feel pretty bad for her because, like, that's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Most people won't even have it happen in their lifetime. 
But that's about all I have today. So I'll see you next time on The Kai Guy Show. Bye.